This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Have you ever heard of Schrodinger's cat? Now, it's a thought experiment, right? It's a hypothetical scenario. It all comes down to the unknown. Now, I could try to explain all of this to you, but I probably wouldn't do it credit or be able to explain why this whole situation is so controversial either. So we're going to bring in Dr. Katie Mack, the Hawking Chair in Cosmology and Science Communication at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. Good morning, Dr. Mack. Good morning. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Now, first of all, could you please explain Schrodinger's cat to us? Sure. So Schrodinger's cat is a thought experiment that was first um, proposed by Schrodinger to Einstein as a way of talking about how weird and seemingly contradictory uh, quantum mechanics is. The idea is that you take a cat. Now, this is a thought experiment. Do not do this. <laughs> but you take a cat, you put it in a box with a vial of poison a Geiger counter and a, a an unstable radioisotope, some kind of um, some kind of uh, uh, atom that, that might or might not decay within the next hour, right? And you don't know if it's going to decay within the next hour because it's a quantum thing, and there's some fifty-fifty probability. Now you close the box, and an hour later you open it, and you would imagine you have a half, you know, fifty percent chance of finding a dead cat, fifty percent chance of finding an alive cat, with the idea that like. The vial of poison is only broken if the atom decays, okay? So that's the basic setup. But the reason that it's controversial, the reason that it's a thought experiment about quantum mechanics is there's this idea that that the atom sort of decays and doesn't decay. It's in this, this superposition of both decayed and not decayed uh, until you observe it. And this is something we see all over quantum mechanics, that certain things kind of seem to be happening and not happening at the same time until we do the observation. It's, it's a very common thing. We see it in the way that electrons behave, and we, we use it in our technology, which I can, I can tell you about things like quantum computing use this idea that, that something can be in two states at once in a certain sense. The right. reason that it's a, yeah, so, so the reason that it's a weird idea, the reason that it was, uh, that's a paradox is that uh, what Schrodinger is saying is if the atom is both decayed and not, then the device that breaks the poison vial is both decayed and not, and the uh, is both triggered and not, and then the cat is both alive and not until you open the box. <laughs> so this is it's a philosophical that, question almost, right? So it's like yeah. you're combining uh, physics with philosophy, and I'm not sure science yeah. people always like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, as a scientific question, it's a question of whether all of these systems can be a superposition together, like whether it all ties together in one quantum process, that the whole, everything inside the box is a quantum system that can be all linked, and then, then it does kind of make sense to say that it's a superposition of both of those two things. But in everyday terms, you, you generally think that, yeah, you know, the atom was in a superposition until it was observed, but surely the cat is an observer. <laughs> like, surely, like, 
surely like as soon as as soon as it has a consequence for the external world in uh, the external to the atom then then it should be considered to be observed there should be a measurement made but this is this is a thing that that scientists don't entirely agree on what what constitutes a measurement why is it that certain things can look like they're in two places at once until you do the measurement Right. And it's, uh, you know what I love yeah. about this, Dr. Mac? Yeah. I love is it like, you know, obviously science is all about the known, right? You want to be yeah. able to answer that question. But sure. this is obviously sure. about the unknown, which, you know, yeah. if you're not a science person, which I am not, I get that. Uh-huh. I get that there's mystery involved here. But is that why do you think for on the science side of things, people are like, no, 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 we want to solve this mystery. We need to know. <laughs> I mean, scientists do want to know. That is that is a fundamental part of of who we are, and it's part of why this thought experiment was so was such a big deal when it was first proposed because it brought up this idea that quantum mechanics might just have uncertainty built into it entirely. Like that, there's a fundamental unknowability at the heart of physics, at the heart of fundamental physics. That as soon as you get to the quantum level, there are things that you just cannot know. You can't know. Um, when you do sort of a quantum coin flip, if it's going to land heads or tails, there's it's it's not that you're not measuring it carefully enough. It's not that you're not like setting up the experiment in the right way. It's that there is there is fundamental randomness. And Einstein never liked this idea. This was when he said God does not play with dice with the universe. <laughs> the idea was that he doesn't like the idea that there's there's fundamental randomness built into physics. And there's still there's still conversation within physics about whether that is truly fundamental randomness, whether there are things that we just cannot know because they cannot be determined ahead of time, or whether there is some mechanism that determines whether the cat will end up alive or dead in this scenario. I love this debate, though, because it really is a debate kind of about about life, right? Is it random? Is it pre-planned? The flipping a coin coin point you make is perfect. Like, we can't know that with any certainty about what's going to happen when we flip a coin. Well, we, well, the reason we can't know when we flip a coin is because we don't we don't measure every possible thing. If we did measure every possible thing, if you flipped a coin and you measured all of the air currents, the exact force you're putting on the coin, the the nature of the surface on which it lands, all of that, then then in principle you could set up a machine that would flip a coin the same way every time and always give you heads or always give you tails. You could set all that up because you could measure everything carefully enough. But, uh, when you get to the quantum level, when you get to the subatomic level, you can't do that anymore because there will be some point at which you can do the same experiment over and over again and get a different answer every time because there is fundamental uncertainty built in. And that's that's the part that's really, really challenging. The idea that, that maybe maybe true reality is a little bit fuzzy on that level and, and is fundamentally unknowable. At a certain level, it doesn't mean I should say it doesn't mean that there, that we can't say anything. We have extremely good measurements. We can give you really precise probabilities about a lot of these things. There's there's a lot that we do know in quantum mechanics is an extremely practical tool that we use in lots of technology, scanning, tunneling, electron microscopes, quantum computers, all kinds of things like that, microelectronics. Right. But there is some level at the very very base level of reality where it appears that randomness is just built in that we just don't get to know. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. (laughs) It just comes down to the unknown that there are going to be some things that we don't know. And perhaps for some people that is just, they don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really troubling. And, and, you know, I have to say like, and it, and it brings up all sorts of other weird ideas like 
people um, have proposed this idea that when when a quantum coin flips, it splits the universe in two, and then there are two universes, and one in which it came up heads, one in which oh, it came don't up Don't get tails. me started. I love that idea, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's something that we really grapple with as scientists to try to contextualize what we see in our data. And the, the data are very clear. We, we can do measurements, we can do uh, experiments, and it all makes sense in terms of the mathematics. But describing the interpretation, describing the, what is fundamentally really happening, that is still a challenge and that is still something that we constantly debate. Oh, love it. All right, Dr. Mack, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's all right. Thanks for, thanks for chatting. This is Mornings with Simi. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, you can't help but look at what is happening south of the border right now and be a little worried, right, about that and worried about our neighbors. The level of polarization. I mean, former President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty in court yesterday to 37 charges related to mishandling classified documents. Documents that included information on defense and weapons capabilities, nuclear programs, plans for military attack. But given the way the electorate is so divided, can this be, you know, dealt with fairly in the judicial system? Well, joining us now to talk about the repercussions of this is Dr. Thomas Nichols, Professor Emeritus of National Security Affairs at Harvard University and contributing writer at The Atlantic. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. We keep hearing the words like unprecedented when it comes to this case. How can the justice system deal with something like this when it's never happened before? Well, that's the beauty of routine and regulations and process. Um, you know, the, the actual arraignment, arrest arraignment, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> of Trump, you know, took place in a very routine way. The whole thing from start to finish was about 47, 48 minutes. Um, that's, the, that's the beauty of being a country of laws. Um, in fact, uh, former President Trump got treated a lot more deferentially than most uh, defendants do. There's a lot of conditions that normally apply to you once you've been um, arrested by the federal government. Um, you have to you know, stay in your uh, home area. You have a probation officer. You have to um, check in, things like that. Trump didn't get any of that. Um, so, you know, so far, um, the, the system is handling this like any other normal case with a defendant. Now, of course, the political ramifications are immense. Um, and, uh, and yet, I'll, I'll even point out that there weren't big crowds. I mean, the Miami police were expecting a lot of people and really just a handful of protesters showed up. So this, this may not be as incendiary as people are, um, were expecting it to be. Right, but it certainly doesn't seem that way when you watch any of the coverage or read any of, any of the news about this, does it? No, and of course, part of the problem um, is that particularly when it comes to Trump supporters and elected Republicans, that they're the loudest voices in the room. Um, and they're the loudest voices saying the most extreme things. Um, and some of them are resorting to a kind of political warfare. One of our senators just put a hold on all 
Justice Department nominations um, until, uh, you know, until something we don't really know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the reaction among elected politicians and particularly on the media, um, in the right wing media sphere here, um, they've kind of lost their minds about this. But um, there is, I think, I think more and more um, you're seeing people coming to the conclusion that there was no government, Democratic or Republican, that wouldn't have prosecuted a case as egregious as this one. Right. OK, so then what are the next steps here? How, how do we how do we think this is going to unfold? Slowly. Um, the next steps are going to be that there will be, as there always are in such cases, motions and counter motions and filings. Um, and that's probably going to be a strategy on the part of the Trump team because they don't have a very good case. And the best they can do is just drag this out for as long as they can, um, certainly hoping to get past the election, which I don't think will be hard for them to do. Um, but to but to simply, you know, delay and delay and delay, because the last thing they want to do is actually um, go into court with with this kind of a dog of a case. So I suspect the, the biggest event that is the actual arrest and arraignment that's over. And now it's going to be a lot of mind numbing um, um, cannonades of paper being fired between both sides for months and months to come. Is this a real test for the justice system? I think it's a test for the American people. I mean, the justice system, um, you know, works. I, I, I think we've come, we've, it's become too common to say, well, the justice system doesn't work. The justice system in the United States actually works pretty well. Um, the question is, will people accept the outcome? Um, will people accept that this was um, a legitimate case to be brought? That's where I think it becomes a test more of the people than of the institutions uh, of the federal ju judiciary at it's this point. It's almost, Dr. Nichols, like a test of everything, isn't it? It's like a, a test of the legal system. It's a test of, of your political system as well, given that this is all going to unfold during a presidential campaign. Oh, yeah, it's a perfect storm. Um, you know, it, it's uh, 240 years in, and we're getting one of the biggest uh, stress tests of the American Republic um, since the Civil War. No doubt about it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I, day by day, I'm either optimistic or pessimistic. Um, but without a doubt, it's going to test the judicial system, the political system, our social fabric. Um, and sadly, all because of, you know, one man who uh, took a bunch of things that didn't belong to him and wouldn't return them um, the way he was supposed to. Um, really, you know, it's a it's a remarkable amount of stress over something that was uh, even his defenders at this point down here have been saying is something that he absolutely brought upon himself. Right. And that's the part that got me too. you had his former uh, attorney general mm -hmm. even in saying that, listen, this was not stuff that he should have had. His former it, it, it's amazing because his former attorney general really went to the wall for him to protect him from the Mueller investigation. And he appointed the Durham uh, circus, you know, that that was meant mostly to placate uh, Trump's hurt feelings about uh, the Russia investigation. You know, that turned out to be nothing. So, so Barr has made it clear he will, you know, really go the distance for Donald Trump. And, and yet even William Barr is saying, hey, if half this stuff is true, the expression he used, he said, he literally said, if half this stuff is true, he's toast.
Because I think one, one, I I worked for many years. I'm actually a professor emeritus at the Naval War College, not at Harvard. And I worked for 25 years for the Defense Department. And, you know, anybody who's ever handled classified information is horrified at, at what Trump did. I mean, it's just insane. You see these boxes sitting out and it can just give you, as I wrote a few days ago in the Atlantic, it can give you hives. Just, just looking at what he did with all this top secret information, and I think you know that extends to everybody. To people like Bart, Mike Pompeo has now kind of gotten off this train and said, "This, oh, you know, that. true. This clearly endangered people's lives." You know, um, so it, the dam on that may be breaking down here. Well, I we hope. will see. Yeah, we will see. Uh, Dr. Nichols, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is mornings with Simi. This should be an incredibly busy month in Tofino when it comes to tourism. But as you've been hearing in the news over the last few days, wildfires have resulted in the continuing closure of Highway 4. Now, that is the only paved route into the community. And you know the one. You've probably uh, done it yourself. So they know in Tofino that this does happen, right? They're kind of used to occasionally being cut off from outside access. But this is going on for quite a while now. And you're talking about lots of businesses and and people being impacted by this. And right now it looks like it's going to take some time before the road actually opens again. They're worried about the wildfire. They're worried about uh, debris hitting cars on the road below. So uh, it is definitely causing a huge concern there. And just think about that. All the people who have trips planned there. I was uh, telling people earlier that I actually sat next to some people on the airplane uh, coming home just on the weekend. They were coming from France and one of their destinations was they were going to Tofino. And I keep thinking of them, too, in light of all this news. So let's find out what the latest on the situation is. Uh, the mayor of Tofino, Dan Law, is with us now to talk about that. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. What is the road situation like right now? Well, it is uh, the, the only way in and out on road, by road is the, uh, is the alternate route through Couch and Lake right now. So it, it is open. It is longer. It's, uh, uh, you know, the ministry is saying it's only for, for essential service at the time. But the, people are coming through and, uh, you know, people are coming through and supplies are coming through, fuel's coming through. So it's, uh, it's better than nothing. I guess. Are tourists getting through? You know, some tourists are getting through. Uh, they're choosing to do the route, and uh, they're making it through. So what kind of impact is this having, Mayor Law, on the town? Well, it is, uh, you know, it's really quiet. Our, our, our occupancy levels are just, you know, maybe 20% or something like that. So uh, it's having a pretty significant impact on businesses and on the town. And what have you been told from the Ministry of Transportation about how long this might go on for? Well, there, you know, we had the uh, we we had the the briefing yesterday and the update, and uh, we met with the MLA right after that. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's looking like July before uh, or the twenty fourth before uh, before we get single lane traffic anyway uh, on Highway Four, and then uh, and then for a full opening sometime in July. Now that's a long ways away. So how how is the town going to cope with all that? That's, a, that's an extended period of time in what should be your busiest time of year. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's you know t- to be honest, uh, it's uh, some some businesses businesses are going to be uh, you know they're going to be suffering. It's going to be devastating for some for some businesses for sure. 
Is there anything you could do at this point? Like how bad is the wildfire situation? Is is Highway 4 like impassable? Is there a concern for people? Yeah, they they, they uh, I mean they won't they won't even uh consider opening opening the highway until the the fire is is uh is out. And right now it's being held. That was the last uh, last update yesterday I I saw, which is great. So it's not growing. Uh, you know, the rain is coming. Uh, the firefighters are doing an exceptional job. Uh, so I have no doubt they'll, they'll get it under control and, uh, and get it out. But then they have to, you know, they have to make sure that road is safe. There's, it's extremely steep. Uh, so there's debris that are, that's coming down. So they've got a lot of work to do. Uh, they're, I mean, they're doing a tremendous job, but we have no complaints. Uh, uh, that's for sure. We think that the uh, firefighters in the province and, and ACRD, everybody involved is, is just doing an exceptional job. I guess what I was also thinking here too, Mayor Laws, like, you know, Tofino just gets more and more popular all the time, doesn't it, right? Like it's becoming more and more of a destination. Is it time to think about the access to the area? Well, <laughs> you know, it is remote. Uh, there, There is, you know, there's... Uh, there's only one road in, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. It's just the geography. Uh, you know, one of the things that's that's really interesting is is uh, how many people are starting to fly. Uh, all the airlines, Alio Air, Tofino Air, you know, Harbor Air, all these these uh, local airlines have, uh, you know, they've upped their flights. Uh, they've put so many more flights on, and all those flights are full. So, so that's kind of, uh, you know, that's one thing that's that's interesting out of this is how many people are flying, and and it is a fantastic way to travel. It's fast, uh, it's beautiful, it's a wonderful trip. Uh, it's scenic, you know. So that, that that's kind of nice to see. So it does sound like though you 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 get it. Like you're like, no, this is kind of the charm, the beauty of Tofino is that it's a bit isolated. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, it's not bad to have a you know little barrier to entry. Uh, you know, Tofino is a beautiful place, and it's a great community. And yeah, if it was, uh, you know, if it was uh, really easy to get to, I don't know, maybe uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe, uh, impact the charm. I don't know. Maybe it would lose some of that. Okay, so uh, July before things are fully back up and running then. So any message for people then? Is that when would you like people to make sure they continue to support Tofino, keep making those bookings? Oh, certainly. You know, one of the things that's happened uh, is, is that is that uh, people have, you know, people from away, maybe Europe or, or you know, across Canada or, or down in the States or something, there's, there's start, we're starting to see people cancel their bookings. Uh, on into the summer, and, and you know they they see the news, they they think, oh no, uh, BC's on fire, let's uh, let's cancel. So that is concerning, uh, you know. The, the, this uh, you know the fire and, and the shutdown is reaching far beyond uh, uh, the incident itself, and and that's concerning. So um, yeah, it's uh, I guess we're, you know it's it's tough. Uh, I think it's going to start. We're going to start seeing that uh, across BC as well. So, I, you know what? I don't know what to say. Uh, we can make some bookings. Uh, you could say, like, you know what? Come to <laughs> Tofino when the road is open. Oh, come to Tofino when the road is open. Absolutely. Uh, you know, absolutely. Come to Tofino. Fly. Uh, you know, get. Uh, it's. I tell you, the people that are here right now, uh, you know, that have made it to Tofino. Uh, it is just stunning. I mean, it's quiet. The weather's beautiful. 
So uh, it is it is a bit of paradise. Uh. It's a bit unique right now, I would guess, right? <laughs> bit unique. Yeah, it is. It's pretty special, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, thank yeah. you so much. We'll keep that in mind. Thank you for your time today. Okay. Thanks for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I think we all hope that when we make a donation to a cause, we really hope it will make a difference, right? I mean, of course, every little bit helps, but sometimes a donation can really be life-changing. And that's what we are hearing about with this $20 million donation from the Diamond family to St. Paul's Hospital. Now, we talked about it quite a bit in the last couple of days. We talked about it with Rob Shaw, the difference this will make in the kind of health ministry. It's going to mean a whole new way of dealing with addiction and treatment, something very different from the way the current system deals with addiction. And it's inspired by the Diamond family's own story. So let's learn about why this is so unique and special. Dr. Shona Nolan is with us now, head of Providence Healthcare's Division of Addiction at St. Paul's Hospital and a clinician scientist with the BC Centre on Substance Use. Dr. Nolan, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. How life-changing is this donation going to be, do you think? I mean, it's, it's incredible, to put it bluntly. You know, this is a significant investment in a new way of offering substance use care and services. And um, I know myself and my team at St. Paul's Hospital is so incredibly grateful to the Diamond Family and Foundation. Their generosity and commitment to addressing substance use disorders has really been the catalyst in terms of allowing us to approach how we can offer addiction care in a better, more effective, more evidence-informed way. And why is it so personal for them? Because just listening to them and reading about it, it is very clear this is personal to them. Yeah, I mean, I think the courage and the bravery that the Diamond family has displayed in terms of sharing their very personal story of their son and brother, Stephen, who died of a fentanyl overdose, is outstanding. And we need to hear more stories like this. The fact that Stephen wasn't able to access the resources that he needed at the time really signifies that there is such a powerful intensity that um, is associated with the disease of addiction. And really, no matter how much money or resources you have, um, there are people who just can't escape the throes of it. And so I think, you know, this was really important for them to honor Stephen in a way that they felt as though they could do some good and, and you know, try to exhibit a, a system transformation change so that others, families and loved ones can escape the sorrow and the sadness and the grief that they had experienced. So what is going to be different then about this system versus the way we do things now? Yeah, so in our current system, there are addiction services available, but the challenge is that they're really not coordinated in either an evidence-informed or a comprehensive way. And so government has been very good about dedicating resources to expanding both harm reduction and treatment services But the road to recovery model that the Diamonds have invested in is about not just increasing local treatment capacity by building almost 100 new beds at at St. Paul's Hospital, but more importantly, working with our community partners who are already offering addiction services, bringing everyone to the same table, centrally uh, accessing services, so making sure there's one single point of entry for anyone who's interested in accessing addiction services, And then um, coordinating care referral pathways. So, you know, if I see a patient in clinic and they're interested in going to a bed-based treatment program, 
um, our social worker or a member of our interdisciplinary team will spend a significant amount of time calling various different treatment providers to see if there's a bed available. And what we hope to accomplish through the Road to Recovery is eliminating that inefficiency in time and um, making sure that existing addiction treatment providers um, can come together and there's a coordinated pathway to treatment services so that in the end, any individual who's interested and willing and motivated to access addiction care can do so. But equally importantly, we can make sure that people are accessing the right level of services at the moment they're interested in accessing it. Now, Dr. Nolan, the way you describe it there, I think, well, why aren't we doing this already? Like, it seems so (laughs) simple and so obvious. So why aren't we doing that already? That's a great, great question. So whenever I explain this, I use, you know, the existing system of care we have to uh, treat other chronic relapsing diseases. So, you know, a heart attack is a great example. Someone at home develops chest pain and the general public has been really well educated around what the signs and symptoms of a heart attack are. And so an ambulance gets quickly called before the ambulance even arrives in the emergency department. They've already radioed ahead to let them know that their heart attack patient is on the way You know, a huge interdisciplinary team meets them as they're wheeled through the door. Their blockage is, you know, removed in the cath lab. They're enrolled in an outpatient rehab program. And really, irrespective of where that heart attack happens in the province, there already is a system of care to link people to the services that they need when they need it. And that's what we're trying to build throughout the province of British Columbia. The addiction treatment system is just so far behind in terms of having an integrated and seamless structure, but we're hoping that through this donation and through the road to recovery model of care, we'll be able to build that and make sure that, you know, irrespective of where someone is, you know, the moment they raise their hand and they're interested in accessing addiction care, there's a system in place that will envelope them and actually will make it difficult for them to fall between the cracks and, and, and continue to support them longitudinally as they need it uh, through their recovery journey. Okay, now we've talked about this, I feel like, Dr. Nolan, for years, right? And I've always used the example of if you have a heart attack, you get put into the heart attack stream. You have cancer, you get put into the cancer stream. The system doesn't let you go. But up until now, if you've overdosed and overdosed repeatedly, there, the system has not held on to you. Yeah, there is no stream, and that's what we're trying to build. So, um, you know, there should be a stream similar to heart attacks and kidney disease and critical care conditions. There should be a really robust structure of care. Um, Healthcare providers who offer substance use services across the province should be linked and networked in, in some official way. And, you know, there should be ongoing work between each of the different health authorities to make sure that people can access the type and level of services that they need. Do you think this could be a model then for, like, you know, a bigger rollout here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the advantages of the new Road to Recovery model is that we're working with the BC Centre on Substance Use to undertake a parallel evaluation. And so we will be collecting data and using that data to inform as we move forward what's working, what's not working, how do we need to pivot And through all of that work, the hope is that we'll be able to use this knowledge gained in an evidence-informed way to to inform how we scale up and implement other types of models like this across the province. How long until this gets up and running, Dr. Nolan? How long before somebody will feel the impacts of this? 
Well, we've been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes work, so it's not just like it's all starting this week. We've been working with Providence Healthcare and a lot of the different partners, including Vancouver Coastal Health and the Regional Addiction Program, the BC Centre on Substance Use, our Indigenous Wellness Team. It's been ongoing for, you know, a while now, and we are hopeful that our first beds will start to open in the fall of this year. Um, The 100 new beds or 95 new beds will be opened in a phased approach. Um, But, you know, really, patients will start to benefit from this new model of care uh, as early as this fall. Oh, I hope so. Thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. Have a good morning. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's not uncommon these days to come across a video of some robots that either look really human or are doing really human things, right? And, you know, it's kind of creepy when you watch it. Now, why do we get that feeling? Why does seeing human-like machines give us a feeling of unease? Well, there is a reason for that. We're going to talk about it, actually, with our next guest. It's Dr. Carl McDormand, who's an Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and Director of Informatics and Artificial Intelligence at the Luddy School of Informatics, Computing, and Engineering. Thank you so much for joining us. Great being here. Thank you. Now, why do we get that feeling of unease when we see this kind of human-like machines? I think there can be many reasons, but uh, you know, the, the uh, there's a there there can be like a feeling that there's a a loss of connection that we're not feeling that we're in the presence of a real human, and I think that has something to do with our expectations. For example, Maury gave some examples, like if somebody's wearing a prosthetic hand and they shake another person's hand and they 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 look at the hand, they think it's real, but when they feel it, they don't feel the, the human touch. So really, your brain is telling you something is human, but then you realize that it's not. And that is, it, that is sort of an uncanny experience. Right. So your brain is, ex- it's really about your brain and what the brain is expecting and then doesn't feel. Yes, I think that's it. I think it's when you're, when at least parts of your brain are telling you that something is human and other parts are telling you that it's not. So in, in my research, where I typically find it, it's not really that you're confused about whether something is human or something is not human. You, know, you may be certain that this really is a robot because someone told you it was an android. But something happens. There are some aspects of it that make you, make you feel that it's human and maybe some other aspects that are just not right. And it can kind of pop out at you like that. Right. So tell me about your research then. What do you look into? Uh, I've been looking at the Uncanny Valley for a long time, so I've been looking at it from from many different perspectives. I mean, recently I'm thinking very much about why is it in computer animation that people can feel a sense of uncanniness and how this might ruin a narrative. For example, if you're identifying with a hero character in, in the plot and and then something happens to make you feel that it's not really human, then I think that this this can be harmful for the plot because really you're you're hoping for good things to happen to the character and uh, and so on, um, and that's not the case for a vil- villain like Gollum. It's supposed to be uncanny and it's supposed to be disturbing. So I think. You know, in, in film, if there's an uncanny, heroic character and bad things happen to the character, people's empathy is not 
operating normally. And it means that a narrative that should work no longer works because of the uncanny valley. So I think that's part of, of what I'm looking into right now. Right. Is this a survival instinct, do you think, like helping us recognize uh, in our environment what is safe, perhaps, and what isn't? That is, um, I think that was in footnote three of uh, Masahiro Mori's original um, 1970 article. He mentioned that he thought it was like a, a survival instinct. I think, um, you know, that could be possible. That could be that could be one explanation. So it has been linked to, uh, you know, the idea that why why are we finding dead bodies disturbing or, or, or disgusting? Because it could be a you know a, a a vector for transmitting disease or pathogens, uh, that kind of thing. So I think that's one possible explanation, but I think there are also many other explanations. So if artificial intelligence gets better and better and it becomes more and more difficult for us to make that recognition, do you, do you think that's that's a problem? I think it's already happening now, but I'm not sure it's exactly um, the, the uncanny valley that Maury described because he's really looking at a relationship between human likeness and our sense of affinity. So as you take an industrial robot, make it more human-like, make it very sleek and product-like, people feel more affinity, more affection, and and a connection. But if it's too human-like, then there's like this this negative feeling. But I think with AI, it's somewhat different. I think the very idea of a machine that can feel is disturbing. And... uh, for example, Kurt Gray has done some has done quite a bit of research on on this kind of un- uncanniness that the idea of feeling machines is disturbing, and people are also disturbed by the by the philosophical do- zombies, which is like the idea of uh, uh, someone who's completely human in every expect in every way, but doesn't have human experience, doesn't feel pain and and doesn't have emotion and so on. So I think those kind of extremes are disturbing. And when interacting with AI, um, you know, you could have that kind of feeling like it's a machine, but it does actually feel, it does understand me. At least, you know, in a chat GPT, um, in, G- in chat GPT, sometimes it says that, you know, it is conscious and that kind of thing. So people are disturbed by that. Yeah, I could see why too. Well, interesting field of work. Thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure.